You might remember during the uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which Jesus was there for, he'd gone, not along with the family, along with the neighbors and the caravan, but he'd gone quietly uh, by himself. He didn't want to attract a, big, a lot of attention. He knew the Jewish leaders had been trying to find him. They wanted to kill him. Uh, but he was all about his father's timing and his father's plan for things to play out. And that here in the middle of this eight-day celebration of harvest, a rem reminder of how God had taken care of them through all those years when he'd brought them out of Egypt in the wilderness and they'd lived in tents, tents or in booths. They would live in those, those uh, they're supposed to make a, uh, they called it a booth or a tent, but it was made out of branches. And remember what it was like for their ancestors who followed Moses through the wilderness and lived in temporary shelters. It says in the middle of that festival, Jesus shows up in the temple, in the temple courts, and begins teaching the people. And as he's watched, as he's heard, people are like, oh, this, this one. Oh, he's here. The leaders are saying, where did he get this learning? He wasn't discipled by one of our people. He didn't sit at the feet of Gamaliel. He didn't learn from one of our experts in the law. And Moses was much on their mind because of that particular feast that was going on. But they were questioning Jesus' credentials. Who, who was it that taught this man? And Jesus says, I give my teaching from my father. That's where my teaching comes from. So that's kind of where we pick up in verse 19 of John chapter 7. And the main focus of this section really is people debating, people working through in their minds, who is this man? And Jesus wants, hey, he has some things for them to think about who he is. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read uh, verses 19 through 36 of John 7. Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are trying to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this is man, is man is from. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, 
teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he has said? You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So you can see there's just a lot of thinking and wondering, and Jesus is, is interjecting into their wonderings about him, right? He's feeding them good information, good truth, so that those who would believe have truth ready for them to believe. He also is throwing questions at them to make them think, to analyze their lives and, and what they're about. And he starts that off right here in verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? And a, a, a series of questions here in verse 19. But I can imagine Jesus kind of pausing between them. There's this group of religious Jews in the temple. And by the way, stop and think about it. Here's Jesus who has been telling us that he is who? He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. That he is, in fact, equal with God. That's why they wanted to kill him. That he, he said, I am the bread of life. This building, this magnificent place, was built for what purpose? To worship him, right? That central building there in the middle where all the sacrifices and things happened, all of that was served what purpose? It was a picture of him coming, right? That he would be eventually come and be that perfect sacrifice who would actually pay for sins. And all, of, all those different things in many different ways pointed to the coming of the one who would pay for sin. And he's sitting down amongst these people who claim to be worshiping God, and yet he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. So he's going to ask him some questions to, to get down to the heart level. Did not Moses give you the law? Yeah, Moses gave us the law, right? You can see heads nodding. Yeah, it came from Moses. And yet none of you carries out the law. None of you keeps on doing the law. Oh, Wow, they've been pretty religious. They've come to this eight-day festival. They've left their, their livelihoods behind. They're doing the kinds of things. They've come and, and, and participating, and they're living in a, in a little branch hut for a week. What do you mean we're not keeping the law? And yet who can? 
points to our sinfulness, right? Every one is a sinner, right? And he takes it further. He points out the hearts, particularly here of the leaders, the Jewish leaders. Why do you seek to kill me? There's increasing shock in the boldness of his questions. As Jesus addresses these people who, who claim to be worshiping God, and yet they don't recognize him when he's sitting in their midst. So dig down deep, people. Think about what God has given you through Moses. Think about where your hearts have gone. You want to murder someone who's been telling you the truth. Someone who has, has done amazing things. You remember back in, in chapter 5, after he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, and he talked about God being his own father, then they wanted to kill him. That's what he's referring back to. And we noticed in chapter 7, verse 1, as well, that he hadn't gone to Jerusalem, been in Jerusalem, Judea for a while because they were wanting to kill him. And of course, the father's timing was what, what was most important there. And then look at how they reply back to him in verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Boy, it's amazing. Think about those words is how extreme they are, right? Uh, they've just acknowledged in the section before this that Jesus is a teacher who sounds like he's been trained by a learned rabbi. They said, where did he get this learning? And Jesus has attributed his teaching instead to the Father, to God, right? He said, I've sat at the feet of my Father. I know his heart. I know him. They can't accept that. And then Jesus exposes their murderous desire, right? And when our sin is exposed, we often go to an extreme as well, right? We overdo it. When you get finger pointed at you and you know it's true, don't you sometimes, you go way over the top, don't you, coming back? And the things Jesus has been doing are clearly supernatural. So they either have to acknowledge, like Nicodemus did in, in chapter 3, that his teaching comes from God because of the miracles he's been doing, or they have to attribute it to another supernatural source. And they do, right? You have a demon. It's Satan doing these miraculous things through you. Now, it's likely that the situation back in Matthew chapter 12 has already happened. And you might remember back in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 24, uh, we're in the context here of uh, who, what, what's the Sabbath all about? There's a man in the synagogue with a withered hand, and they're just waiting to jump on Jesus if he heals on the Sabbath day. They're going to say, oh, you're breaking the Sabbath. Okay? And he, he works them through well, a very similar situation, like he's going to work through their hearts right now. And he amazes them with how he heals that man. It gets people thinking, oh, is this the Messiah? But the Pharisees, instead of attributing the power to God, verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. 
They can't admit that Jesus is empowered by God. Otherwise, they have to accept His teaching too. And so they attribute the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus to Satan. And if you follow that, that chapter down, basically Jesus tells them that they as a nation then commit what is known as the unpardonable sin. That's, that's why Israel gets set aside for a time and why Jerusalem gets destroyed. But it's, it's, a, it's a, a question you have to answer. If he can do these amazing things, where does the power come from? If he can speak these amazing words, who is the source of those words? And if God is the source of those words, you have to listen and pay attention and believe and be changed. But Jesus has an answer for them. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. Again, he's referring back again to, to how he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, the man who had been unable to walk for, for a long, long period of time. And Jesus gets him to stand up and actually is able to carry his bed. Right? So he has actually recreated muscles. And, and not only that, but muscle memory and the ability to walk after having not walked for all that time, he's done acts there that only God can do. And they marveled, but you remember, they didn't marvel that he had done something that only God can do. They marveled that he told the man to carry his bed on the Sabbath. They were all up in arms because he had broken the Sabbath according to their way of looking at the Sabbath. That's what they marveled at. They were amazed at. Because he did one thing. And it led to a desire to kill Jesus. But as he claimed to be equal with his father. He says, anger with me. He calls what's going on in their hearts an ongoing anger. It's a present tense verb. And the word that he used, used here isn't just your normal word for anger. It's a word that relates to the word gall or bile. So it's a burning anger within themselves deep down. They've been holding on to this anger because of who Jesus has said he is. He says, let me get into your minds a little bit here. Let me get into what you're thinking. You love Moses' law. You were all excited when I said Moses gave you the law, right? Verse 22, he says, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it came from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? See, they've run into this apparent contradiction in the Mosaic law. They were commanded to circumcise a baby boy on the eighth day after he was born. Well, what happens if the eighth day falls on the Sabbath? That's, that must be an act of work, right? And so they thought it all through, and it was like, well, what's going on here is we are completing him as a man by performing circumcision. And so it's okay to do this act of bringing good into this baby's life on the Sabbath. God must be okay with it. And there were even some rabbis who said it would be good to do any kind of life-saving work on the Sabbath. They thought that all through with circumcision, 
But Jesus has made that whole man, a man who couldn't walk, who couldn't take care of himself, who couldn't even get up and get into the pool when the waters moved, right? Made him completely well. He says, stop and think about this a little bit. Don't you see the, the double standard? Don't you see the contradiction in your thinking? Because you don't want to accept my words, because you don't want to believe in me, you're willing to do all kinds of mental gymnastics to say that I'm empowered by Satan. I'm empowered by a demon. Thing is, is they, they weren't getting to the heart of who God was in his commandments, like keeping the Sabbath. It's like in Mark 2.27, where Jesus told them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And one of the interesting things I find about that statement is that the, the tense of when it says he said it means it was something he said multiple times again and again. Probably used to teachers who kind of keep coming back and saying the same thing again and again. But Jesus repeatedly said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. For the good of mankind, not so that people can be conformed to a rule or to a law, but it was a gift from God for your good. So shouldn't good be done on the Sabbath? And he uses the example in Matthew 12, where we just were, verse 11, about if you find a sheep fallen into a pit, don't you pull it out on the Sabbath day? Don't you do good on the Sabbath for this animal that's in, in trouble? So shouldn't I help a human being by healing on the Sabbath? Don't you get God's heart for people, he's saying to them? But digging down into their heart, verse 24, back in John 7, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So they were so tied up with externals, with how things looked, with how things ought to be. Instead of getting to the heart of God's purposes and plans for them, even in the law that he gave, they, they missed God's heart. They missed his purpose. They had a hard time seeing past the legal rules to get down to a relationship with the God who made them and loves them. One of the interesting things recently, kind of just as an aside, my daily Bible reading, I've been reading through Deuteronomy re recently. It's the second giving of the law, right? Might be interested to go back through Deuteronomy sometime and see how many times God commands them to love the Lord your God. And these are all things that relate to that, in essence, what he's saying. The first commandment, the main love the Lord your God. And then join him in these things that he commanded the nation of Israel to do. But Jesus also here, when he tells them to judge not by appearances, but according to righteousness, seems to be paraphrasing an Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Turn with me back to that in, in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah chapter 11. It 
It says, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Remember, Jesse was David's father. We have, we have a descendant of David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now pay attention. Here's where kind of he paraphrases in verse 3. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And it will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Now looking ahead to the Messiah, obviously some of that's not fulfilled yet, right? That'll be, a, be, be fulfilled in his second coming when he comes to rule and to reign. But now he's charging here, especially the Jewish leaders that he's talking to, to stop being biased, Stop being wrapped up in the legalisms of the law and do your judging according to truth and according to the heart of God who is going to send the Messiah. Oh, by the way, he says, I'm here. And he is judging not according to how they appear because they appear great to the people around him. But he sees their hearts. And he's challenging their hearts to know the God they, they claim to know in truth. And here, of course, Jesus is also emphasizing his relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. Notice Isaiah talked about the Messiah would have the Spirit on him. So here you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all working in conjunction as predicted in the Old Testament. Well, this sets off the people. Now they're, thinking, they're trying to make sense of all the things Jesus is telling them. There. So verse 25 says, So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is not this the man whom they're seeking to kill? But here's the locals, right? Remember, there's people, thousands and thousands of people who have poured into Jerusalem for this, this feast. But the local people who go to the, to the, the local synagogues in Jerusalem and fellowship in those, uh, those uh, places of worship are saying, you know, the word came through. They're looking for Jesus. They're trying to kill him. If, any, if anybody sees him, we're supposed to report him so that they can be arrested by, by the temple guards. Isn't this him? You know what? They are trying to kill this man. And yet, here he see, sits, verse 26. Look, he's speaking publicly. And they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ or the, the Messiah, do they? Silence speaks pretty loud sometimes. I think it's out of fear that they haven't done anything to Jesus. He's right here in the middle of crowds who are, are thinking, wow, maybe this man could be the Messiah. Uh, they don't want to start a riot. They don't want to get in trouble with the Romans. They think, well, but he's just sitting here. He keeps on teaching. Nobody's stopping him. Maybe they know that he is the Messiah. Well, we've seen the things he's been doing. We've been hearing his teaching. Not shutting him up. Is he the sent one? Is he the anointed one God promised back throughout the Old Testament scriptures? But then they get to thinking through some of the things they've been taught. Uh, verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. They knew he was from Nazareth. 
They knew some facts about, about things like that. He was Jesus of Nazareth. That's how people knew of him, right? But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Well, theological theories about the Messiah, things that the people had been taught, made them think, well, Jesus doesn't fit the bill. Uh, they were familiar with, with how Malachi 3.1, for instance, fit into some of the, uh, the, the theology of the, of the day. The very last book of your Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, hear God speaking ahead about the one he would send. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Which actually is interesting. They should have been expecting the Lord to show up in the temple, and here he was, by the way. But they were thinking of how this passage connects, they've connected the dots with some other passages, actually in an incorrect way, in an incomplete way, and said, well, when Messiah comes, he's just going to come out of nowhere, and nobody's going to know where he's from. Well, we know this guy. He's from Nazareth. That's where Jesus is from. That's his hometown. That's where he grew up. And so they're going with the theory. And I think that's one of the things we have to be careful about in studying the Bible. We should certainly be studying God's Word all the time to see what it says. But we have to be careful to not latch on to denominational ideas, uh, to latch on to theological systems, and make the Bible conform to them. Let the Scripture teach about itself and interpret it itself. Some of those, those systems can be helpful. They might, they might guide us. They might give us some structure. But we have to understand that there's some things that we're still trying to figure out. No matter where you land with the doctrine of future things, do you know all those details for sure? Boy, there's, there's a lot to know there. We have to be careful not to say, well, this is the system of so-and-so or this man or that man, and say, well, it's all got to fit according to his system. Well, you know what? He didn't write it. The Holy Spirit did. So hold on to those things loosely. Hold on to God's Word tightly and keep on pressing into it to know it better. Here are some people who maybe missed their Messiah because they held on to a system and said, well, he's, he's just going to appear out of nowhere because of this theological system. And they were about to miss him, maybe. But Jesus corrects them. And I can just see what's going on here is Jesus has been talking, and then all of a sudden, all these little conversations break out among the people. Has that ever happened in a Bible study you've been in? <clears throat> has happened to me a time or two. And it's not a bad thing because people are processing. They're thinking things through, right? But according to verse 28 then, it says, Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Notice what Jesus didn't say, by the way. He didn't say, oh, you guys don't know everything. I was actually born in Bethlehem, just like the scriptures predicted the Messiah would be. It doesn't mention that. It doesn't say I was only in, in, in Nazareth because there was, you know, the danger and I might, no, he doesn't, that's not what's really important. It's, it's true that he was and it's important that he was born in Bethlehem, but that's not the main point here. Jesus is emphasizing that he is sent from heaven by his Father. That's where he is from that matters. 
he is the Son of God who came down from heaven. You remember, just back in Capernaum in chapter 6, uh, verses 38 through 42, what he just said just a few months prior to this. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given to me, I lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, for I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread of life who came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is, this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I've come down out of heaven? Hasn't changed his message, has he? And they haven't changed their hang-up either, have they? Jesus says, here's what's important. I am the Son of God. I have been sent by my Father to accomplish His purposes, and I will accomplish those. I will finish them. And you need to understand that that's who I am. Interestingly, there, in, back in John chapter 7, and verses 28 and 29, twice he talks about being sent by the Father. He uses actually two different Greek words. The first one is kind of more of a normal word for sent, but the second one in verse 29 is the word where we get the word apostle from. Jesus will send out, the, well, the 11 that are following him now, along with, with one other, and, that, and they're, they'll be called apostles. That's the word that's used here. Jesus is the apostle of the Father. He is the sent one of the Father on his particular mission, right? That's why he is on earth. That's why he has come. And he will do the will of the Father. He keeps emphasizing that. He keeps making that clear. But then it's interesting that then that what he, he emphasizes at the end is that Jesus knows the Father, but they don't know the one who sent him. Again, the same point that was made back in verses 23 and 24. Their judgments of God's word are not correct because they don't know or understand the author. So you're just making judgments the wrong way because you don't know God and you don't know his heart. So yeah, you've memorized two huge chunks of the law. You've debated it and you've decided here's how it can be kept and here's how it can't be kept. But you don't know the one who gave it to you to start with. Jesus says, I know him perfectly. I know him intimately. And that's the difference here. They need to turn their focus to God, not people's perceptions, and not just about keeping rules. They need to know the Father. Well, once again, in verses 30 through 32, kicks off some more reactions, right? Verse 30, so they were seeking to seize him. Wow. The heart that's convicted, that's, that's, that's told, you don't know what you're doing. When we prefer to, to say, yeah, I, I know what I'm about, can react violently. They wanted to literally grab a hold of him, arrest him. It says, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And I can see um, at this point, Jesus has maybe concluded his teaching time and starts moving around the temple courts, yeah, in the, in the, the area there. And they're like, Okay, you can get to him. Oh, 
a big group of people just moved between us and him. Well, he went that, you know, or somebody backs out. What, for whatever reason, however God did it, even though this was the place that they knew the best, they couldn't get to Jesus and, and, and grab him and arrest him. It says that they attempted to do it repeatedly. Again, the verb tense means they kept, it wasn't just that they tried to seize him once, but they kept on, they multiple times went to grab him so they could put him in custody so they could get rid of him. It says they couldn't. Why? Well, because it wasn't his time. Jesus was working perfectly according to God's plan, and things would not happen until God was ready for it. They could not take custody of Jesus if God was not ready for that to happen. And then verse 31 says, But many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, When Christ, or Messiah, comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? They were seeing the evidence. You know, he, had, he had performed the, the, the healing back there in Galilee had seen him multiply the bread and the fish and feed the, a crowd of ten to 20,000. Uh, they'd seen him heal people who were beyond hope. They'd seen him cast out demons. And they're like, could Messiah do any more than this? I can't imagine anyone coming and, and being more powerful, benefiting more people, showing him more to, to have the, the power of God working through him than this. Well, you'll notice in verse 32, it says they were muttering, they were keeping it low, right? But all throughout the courtyard, there were these murmurings, these, these discussions. And a lot of people were saying, how is it that he's not the Messiah? Look at what he's doing. Does that go over well with the Jewish leaders? No. They didn't want to give up their power. They didn't give up their authority. They didn't want to give up their influence over people. Just anyone else, even if he really was the Messiah, they'd grown to love that power. So verse 32 tells us, when the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So now they're not just trying to do it themselves, but they actually send the temple guard, who is a special group, to keep order and, to, and, and to, to enforce the rules of the Jewish religion on the people. And they were granted by Rome actually a certain latitude to do that. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't put anyone to death, but they could actually carry out uh, the, the law that way. And so they sent the guards. This is probably some sort of a, an official action. Maybe they had they'd huddled together in, the, in the, the place where the Sanhedrin, the high court of Israel, would meet and said, okay, this is enough. We need to actually give authority to the guards, have the guards go do that. And we're going to find out later in the chapter what happens with them. But you can see that the resistance, he came into his own and his own, but received him not. But Jesus' time had not come. So verse 33, Jesus is going to speak again. He says, for a little while longer I am with you. It'll be about six more months, by the way, from now until when Jesus goes to the cross. <clears throat> then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. 
Then the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he is saying, you will seek me and will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus here is emphasizing that there's a brief opportunity here. An opportunity is often that way. It comes, but if you don't grab hold of it, it passes. Jesus says a little longer. and Literally, it's about six more months that he's going to be there in person, carrying out his earthly ministry. It's here, and it's going to be gone quickly. And there are blessings, both personal and national, that some of these people are going to miss out on. And so we need to be aware as well. Maybe not of this same magnitude, but personally, are, is God providing you opportunities to follow Him and trust Him, and, and you're letting them slip past you? They may only be here for a moment. Take advantage of them. Press into them with, by faith. Because Jesus says then when His mission is com, com, He's been sent to do is completed, He's going to go back where He came from. He's going to be to heaven to be with the Father. He's not going to be here to be their political leader. He's not going to be the one who saves them physically out of Rome's hands. He's not going to be the one who feeds them meal after meal by multiplying bread all the time. He's not going to be the law enforcer. He's come for something far greater, to come to provide payment for sins so people can live in freedom and have life eternal that goes on and on, which is far more important than all of those other things that they might want him to do but the Jewish leaders just can't go there in their minds. They can't wrap their heads around the fact that he's talking about their hearts, not their physical power, not about their physical things. So that their only thing, they go, oh, well, we can't follow him. Well, he's going to go and teach all the, all the Jews who are, are spread out in all the other countries, because there were Jews just like today in countries all over the known world then. Is that where he's going to go? What does he mean we can't go where he's going? They still don't know God and his plan. They're, they're eager to get to Jesus in order to arrest him. But one day they will need his salvation. They will need to get to Jesus so that he can save them. And they won't be able to. They'll want to be where he is, heaven, but because they've rejected the Savior that was sent, they won't be able to go. It's, it's a solemn warning Jesus has for them. The opportunity is now to believe in Him, to follow Him. And I just want to draw, as we finish up, a contrast between the words Jesus will speak to His disciples in about six months. So turn ahead to John 14, verses 1 through 6. He has said, to, the, to these people who are not believing in him, you can't go where I am going. To his disciples who have said, we believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, here's what he tells them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? 
Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See what what a, a huge contrast there is there? Those who come to Jesus and trust themselves to him, united with him, know the way to him and have that way prepared. And Jesus will, in fact, take us to himself when that time comes, whether our life ends or he comes to take his church. But those who do not believe, they can't go to be where Jesus is going. They cannot go to heaven. That's the heart heart of this gospel is, is know God's heart because he wants to rescue you. He wants to bring you to himself, forgive your sins through what Jesus would accomplish on, on the cross about six months from the time we're studying today. The point of our lives today is different now than it was back then. We can live for this present world and how things seems to be going, how things seem to be going, and try to keep everything all in order the, thing, the way we think we want it to be. But eventually everything comes down to the relationship that we have with Jesus. And what more there is to life than these few years that we're going to live here physically on this earth. It's not very long. Finally, the older I get, the shorter it seems. Okay? But will we be with him? Are we with him now? If we're with him now, then he will keep us with him because we're joined into a covenant relationship where we cannot be separated from him. Make sure that that's the case with you, but also live like that's your truth if you already know him. If you haven't entrusted yourself to Jesus, right now is the time to do it. It's you and him. You talk to him right now. Tell him, yes, I want to be with you. Have my sins forgiven. I want to know you as my Savior and my Lord into eternity. And he'll join himself to you forever. You bring all your sins and everything else that you need dealt with. He will bring all that he is as the eternal son of God. And you'll find he will provide far more than you ever needed, that you ever knew. You can then dwell with him now and into eternity. But make sure that you get the message that that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these other people didn't get. And actually live in that as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus' words. Thank you that we can open up our Bibles and and read these words that don't change over time. They're they're just as pertinent to us today as they they ever were before. Help us to live in light of that. Having, when we put our trust in him, to, to keep on living as his. As, as those who know the eternal God, the Creator, uh, who, who knows every step we're going to take and is willing to walk with us and provide for us and, and care for us. Give us eyes to see that and, and, to, and faith uh, to actually act on it and live in it. In Jesus' name I pray.